in the home stretch as we discuss practical applications of reconciliation. We've got another one ready to go. Here's George. We have been looking with great seriousness at reconciliation, at essentials and non-essentials in our life in Christ, in how we find the unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17. And I want to give one final example of how this can be understood and lived out in the Christian church in our day. And that example is communion. Here's a practical, common example. There are several ways in which communion is explained and lived out, manifested in different denominations. I'll give some examples. The presentation of the Last Supper, the Passover meal, with the priest or pastor recalling Jesus' words to his disciples, and the invitation of the blessing of the Spirit onto the bread and the wine, that they would be for us his body and blood. And whether the presence is seen as real or dynamic or consubstantial, he is understood to be there. I can value and gain from this concept even if it's not my own. Another way, the metaphor of Christ sacrificing himself for us in the Eucharist and doing so before his bride, the church. This is beautiful and heart-rending. That some can accept only a man standing in the role of Christ is comprehensible. I can value and gain from this concept even if it's not my own. Or another, the practice of the Lord's Supper as a memorial, a remembrance only of an important moment in the life of Jesus. This is also clear and comprehensible. It doesn't require a male priest, a Eucharistic sacrifice, nor the real presence. And still, it is wonderful and filled with deep meaning. I can value and gain from this concept, even if it is not my own. Here's another example of how a church sees communion. The experience of communion as a coming together, a love feast of the body of Christ, done to remember Jesus' last meal with his followers and share as he did with his disciples. It is an encouragement to be one with other believers, grateful to share him so easily. I can value and gain from this concept, even if it is not my own. Each of these and several others are typical of communion in one branch or another of the Christian faith. Yet the followers of each typically reject the others as invalid or untrue to scripture or tradition or both. Denominations and churches tend to insist that just one be accepted by you for you to be acceptable. In so doing, the blessings, insights, and heart of the others 
are lost and our union is broken. In no case is the form of communion the concept required for salvation. A Christian can live a lifetime without ever once receiving communion, and it has no effect whatsoever on salvation. For salvation, it is non-essential. Each of these methods of communion and others can be a part of a believer's sanctification. Each of them can have a profound effect on the individual believer's growth and his understanding of Jesus' sacrifice. They can have a similarly profound effect on the whole body of believers as they gather to share the Lord's Supper. But a believer can live an entire lifetime of spirit-filled sanctification without receiving communion even once. For sanctification, each of these methods and even communion itself are non-essential, not required. The key point here is that communion and a host of other practices, methods, doctrines, concepts, and structures, though they may be valuable and important in the life of a Christian, a denomination, or a local church, are nevertheless non-essential to salvation, non-essential to sanctification, non-essential to glorification, non-essential to life in Christ, to covenant. As such, we need to grant liberty in their use and charity in our regard for those who choose differently than we do. This is Meiderlin's deep insight, and it reflects the heart and teaching of Jesus. And so here's the conclusion. Liberty is vital, but merely granting each other liberty still leaves us self-focused and living in our protected and isolating fortresses. That does not qualify as the unity that Jesus prayed for. That's why charity is the necessary final step, loving each other. True unity requires that we see, care for, bless, and protect each other. It's the example given us when Jesus prayed, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. That from John 17. Jesus did not pray that we all organize, worship, share communion, pray, dress, baptize, sing, teach, or understand identically. Jesus says he protected his disciples who got their concepts right and wrong all the time. 
and whose faith wavered and failed with stunning regularity. Did he cast them out for this? No, he protected them. In spite of the chaos and differences of their doctrine and behavior, he protected them. And he prayed that we would be one, united. How can we just ignore him? Listen to how he describes the unity for which he prays. It is to be as the unity of Jesus with the Father. They are in one another, an intimacy of love, a hav. That doesn't make them identical, but gives glory, honor, respect, care, thanksgiving to the other. Jesus said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. We do not experience such perfect unity when we hurt, ignore, or even just tolerate each other. The unity begins with charity, when we love as Jesus loved, when we bless, care for, and protect each other as Jesus did his disciples, when we are other-focused instead of self-focused, when we acknowledge his disciples even when they are not like us, As Matthew Henry said, let us consider all who seek the glory of the Redeemer as our brethren and fellow travelers without regarding differences which do not affect our eternal welfare. We must acknowledge and live out our common roots in Him despite our differences. In the essentials, we are one. It is time to act like it. Well, as has been the case throughout the book, the challenge is presented is sometimes daunting, but the rewards are clearly visible. Thank you, George. Obviously, your pastor's heart is in the challenge to act as one in Christ. We're about finished with our journey through the book. A special visit awaits us next time. I hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, keep in mind that whatwebelieveandwhy.com is your source for this book and other study resources. There's a lot of material that we've covered in our journey, and you may want to go back and review some. We hope you'll join us next time for What We Believe and Why.